All right, if we want to make our way uh, back to our seats, um, we're in Acts chapter 4 today. You can start turning there. Um, Acts chapter 4, starting in verse um, thir- or 23. Um, today we have Austin Beigel. Austin is going to come up and read our passage for us um, as we are stepping into our series through the book of Acts. Um, and so if you're able today, I'm actually going to ask you to stand with me. Um, as we read God's Word together, as we stand out of reverence for God's Word. This is Acts chapter 4, um, beginning in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they had heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. Let's pray together as we begin. Father, as we come before your word, we recognize the fact that so often uh, we forget what it is, or at least we don't act like it is what it is. This is the very breath of God, the very words of God given to us that we may know you. Lord, we recognize that the flowers fade and the grass withers, but your word alone remains forever, abides forever, never losing its power, its truth, Lord, the spiritual power it has to call men and women out of darkness and into light. Lord, we pray today that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher and our helper because we desperately, desperately need him. We ask all this in the power of the Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So today we are kind of wrapping up uh, one of the episodes of the book of Acts. This sort of episode, if you want to call it that, in the, the series of the book of Acts began all the way back at the beginning of chapter 3. As Peter and John walk into the temple, they see a beggar who cannot walk, and they actually, um, God performs a miracle there, raises this man up to walk, and then they follow that up with preaching about Christ and declaring the fact that Christ is the one who healed this man. And that's really where they made people mad, right? People won't get too upset if you heal someone, but they will get upset when you tell them that the man, the one who healed this lame man was in fact Jesus Christ, who was the true Messiah, who was crucified just a short time ago. And so Peter and John find themselves in a courtroom with the Sadducees, the high priestly family, with the Sanhedrin, the high court of the Jewish people. They find themselves in a courtroom and being questioned and asked all sorts of things. But not only that, as we closed last week, they get told, you cannot speak any more about Jesus. Do whatever you want, but don't do that. And they didn't just tell them that. It says that they threatened them further, if you read back a few verses from where we picked picked it up today. 
want you to remember that the threats that these people supplied were not empty threats. Right? The threats that come from this group of people, they weren't just people kind of talking a bigger game than what they could actually accomplish. Right? These are the people that could have you put in jail. They could have you fined. They could have everything that you have taken away. They could have you killed. And Peter and John received those threats, and they say, you can say what you want, but we must continue to speak about Christ. We must continue to speak about what we have seen and heard, because Christ's authority is greater than yours. Now today they, they meet up with other believers, and as they do that, we find them praying, right? Most of this entire section that we read today is them praying. And so today a lot of what we're going to talk about is prayer, but um, we're not going to turn this into like six or seven ways to have a better prayer life, or um, that as, if, as though the main message of today is just kind of tips and tricks to pray better or to pray differently. No, what we're going to do today is what we always do, which is go through every verse of this passage, and we're going to get to the fact that the real message of this, um, this section of Scripture is not how to be better at prayer. We'll, we'll learn some stuff about that, but that's not the main message. It's not about you or me and what we have. The main message of this text is that even though there's pushback and opposition to the kingdom of God, it doesn't stop the kingdom of God. Even though there's opposition, there's pushback to the kingdom of God, it doesn't stop the kingdom of God, and Christ is still supreme. That's the message that the early church embraces here. That's the message that you and I need to embrace today, that Christ is still supreme. He's still in charge. He's still on the throne, even with threats, even with opposition, even with power brokers coming against us. And today we'll go through uh, three sections of the text. If you like headings, you can have headings today. And the three of them are, um, first, the reason that they prayed. Secondly, the, what they prayed. And then lastly, the effect of their prayer. So the reason that they prayed, what they prayed, and then the effect of their prayer. But why do they gather together to pray, right? Look at verse uh, 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and they reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. The reason that they prayed is pretty simple. It's because they had trouble, right? The believers that Peter and John go to them, they're all together, and they report what the chief priest had said. They said, guys, look, these people said we cannot speak anymore about Christ. This is not, again, we can just read this on a page. That would be an incredibly thing. I mean, if somebody walked in today to this building... Some police officer from Canal Winchester or whatever, like, take your pick. Somebody just walked in and they said, hey, you can do church, you can continue to do that, but you better not talk about Christ anymore. And if you do, we'll just fine you, we'll just shut you down, we'll take some of you to prison. Right, that threat was real. And they responded to those threats simply by praying together to God. They don't respond the way that we are tempted to respond sometimes, right? When we face threats or opposition or criticism or anything like that, we can turn it into us being angry, us being fearful, us being depressed or despondent, us being disillusioned. We can turn it into us trying to come up with ways in our own power to get around the obstacle that's just been raised, right? How can we become a cooler church, a better church, a fancier church or something to like get around this issue, this offense that's taken place? 
or we just get fearful and we just kind of shrink back, or we just get angry and then we start going to social media and tagging and and posting all kinds of crazy things, mainly because we're angry and afraid. They don't do that. They don't take to Twitter to talk about how ridiculous this treatment is. Instead, they go to God. They seek God first, and that's a response that for you and me needs to be both a corporate thing and a personal thing. When we are faced with troubles, our first response must be prayer, must be seeking God, because anything other than that is us admitting that we think we have stuff covered. When you and I don't pray about a problem, when you and I don't take our burdens to God, when you and I don't um, lift up the ministry of God that he is using us for to him, it's because we think we can do it on our own. So they don't, also, they don't just go off on their own to pray, right? They don't split up and pray on their own. They actually stay together and pray. There's something that I think is there for us. There needs to be an emphasis on our lives as the church to pray with one another. We have to, we have to be praying not just for one another, but with one another. It's even one of the reasons that we're starting up a, prayer, a monthly prayer gathering for our church soon is because we want to foster um, the type of prayer that we see here in our church, and we want to do that together. I think that so many Christians have a really kind of dried up prayer life because they never actually pray with other believers. I think it's one of the main reasons that we, that we sometimes struggle, and even when we do pray with other believers, we maybe get sucked into just praying through long lists of things instead of actually seeking God in worship as we pray together. But notice not just what they, or why they pray, but notice what they pray here in verse 24. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, this is Psalm 2 that they're quoting, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus." Even though this church is facing issues, notice what their, what their prayer starts with. Their prayer doesn't actually start with, God, we want you to fix this. We want you to remove the, the authorities. The first thing that they bring is worship to God. The first thing that they do is go and they remember who God is and what he has said and done. Because even moments like this, even moments like the early church is in, moments where you and I might be at a total loss for words, even where we are faced with things that are way beyond our control, way beyond our ability, way beyond any kind of comprehension we have to do anything. When our hearts are completely broken beyond repair, when there's absolutely no way that we see out of a valley that we are in, even in those moments, the first thing that we need is to remember who God is and what he has said. That's the first thing that we actually need. 
See, the first thing that we need to do when we go to pray is we need to be reminded of God. We don't pray in a vacuum. We don't just pray on our own. It's sort of like worship, right? As we gather together to worship, what do we do every Sunday? We read a call to worship. The reason for that is not just because it seems like the best way to start a service. The reason that there's a call to worship is because we're saying um, something profound about worship, and that is that we worship God not because the church or the people gather us to worship, but because God himself gathers us to worship, right? So when we read the word of God as a call to worship, what we're saying is, hey, it's not the band's job to get you to worship today. It's not the preacher's job. It's not the, the kids' ministry's job. It's not the connect team's job. You're not coming in here to worship because, oh, all those ministries are so great. You're coming here. You're gathered to worship because of who God is and what he has done and said. It's the same, that we need to have that same kind of attitude as we go and pray, right? We pray because we know who God is. We pray because we want to live and pray out of a response to him, to his grace. And if God's greatness begins the conversation, if God and who he is, if how great he is begins the conversation of prayer, then you and I are reminded that he is actually sovereign and sufficient and able to answer those prayers. I mean, God is able to answer prayers, right, church? God is able to answer prayers, and we need to have a reminder sometimes of how great and awesome He is so that when we go and bring those requests to Him, we are doing so in a mindset that's already been reminded of how able and present and perfect He is. And one of the ways this happens is when we actually start our prayers with Scripture instead of our own words. Right? They start with, um, saying, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, then they go right to Scripture. Right? They're meditating on Scripture. They're learning. They're, they're thinking about the word that God has spoken. They're meditating on that. They're thinking about that. And that is changing what they pray. They actually quote from Psalm 2. If you want to start turning to Psalm chapter 2 in your Bible, we're going to have it on the screen, but also would love for you to turn to it yourself. We'll read the whole thing. Don't worry. It's not long. But I think it's important that they don't simply spontaneously worship God on their own. Right? They start to worship God, but then they quickly turn to the Scriptures. They let the Scriptures um, guide them in their prayer. Because that is what kind of frames their prayer. And the principle that they meditate on, that they rest upon here, is the principle that God is sovereign over all things. This is Psalm chapter 2. Half of this is going to be um, familiar to you. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So I will tell of the decree that the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage or inheritance, as your translation might say. The ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry 
and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's a psalm that I think often challenges the small pictures of Christ, the very polite and mild-mannered pictures of Jesus that we have in our heads. But they are remembering this psalm, and they're recognizing the fact that it has been fulfilled in this moment. They're seeing the fact that what happened in Jerusalem as Christ came in and as he was rejected by the Jewish people and by Herod and by Pontius Pilate and by um, the Romans, as he was crucified by them, what happened was God, that people were trying to reject God's reign. They were saying, let's burst the bonds apart. That the translation is, let us get his yoke off of us. Let us not listen to him anymore. Let's Let's not be subject to God's reign anymore. Let's get his cords away from us. And even though that's what people were doing, that whole time God was laughing. What was really happening is that God's plan was being accomplished. And as Jesus went to the cross for sin, as the only begotten Son of God went to the cross for sin, it wasn't because sin or man won. Jesus went to the cross not because sin or man won. In truth, it was God's victory over sin because the suffering servant was going to make a payment for sin. And as Jesus went into the grave, it wasn't because sin or death or man won. Jesus went into the grave so that he could take your sin into the grave and bury it. And then he could not just stay there, but he could raise up over sin and death and shatter them completely and be the king set on Zion, the holy hill, on his throne forever and ever. And he could do that while offering forgiveness today to the sinners who put him on the tree. See, he went there and he, he did all of this not simply to judge sinners and not to be subject to their judgment, but instead to save sinners. As you read that, that psalm and you think about maybe how dark or how brooding or how ferocious, or I don't know what, what, you, wanna, what you wanna adjective you wanna put to this, of the wrath of God towards sin, of his reality of his judgment towards sin. Think also about how there are these little pockets of encouragement in here, even ending with the fact, blessed are those who take refuge in him. So even in the severity of God's judgment for sin, listen, he says, you can come and take, take refuge in me. Even though all of the payment for all the sin, yes, it's due upon your head and my head, because we are the ones, all of us, we are the ones who have said, let's take those bonds off of our shoulders. Let's be God. Let's be in charge. I think I know better than him. I'd like to do these things instead of those things, even though that's all of us. And it was our sin that took him to the cross. He dies, he comes back, and he says, come to me and find refuge. You need to find refuge in Christ today. Be warned, you can find refuge today. If you don't find it in Christ, there is no other. 
And this is true whether, whether you are a person of lots of authority or a person of no authority, right? We talked about this a little last week, but this truth of Christ inheriting a throne over all people everywhere is true whether they are whether you are a regular person or a president or a king or whoever you may be every person everywhere needs to find refuge in Christ because he alone is the refuge the forgiveness for sin and so all of us are are required to trust in him and also to recognize that he is lord over all things The Christians here recognize that God's will is going forward even, even among the sinful opposition and actions of man, right? Uh, we talked about this a little bit ago in, in Acts chapter 2, I think it was in verse 22 when we talked about this, how God's um, sovereignty works alongside man's will, right? We talked about the doctrine of what was called compatibilism. Um, and, and if you have questions about that today, we're not going to go as deeply into it today as we did then, but I'd love to answer them for you, and I'd also love to invite you to maybe listen to that sermon, um, but I'd be even more happy to answer questions for you today. What we see in this, in this psalm, and even how the believers apply it, right, they say, after they think about this psalm, they say, truly in this city we are gathered together against you, your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The reality about how man's um, will works in line with God's sovereignty is that God in his absolute perfect sovereignty doesn't actually have to turn anyone into a robot to accomplish his will. All right, sometimes when we talk about God's sovereignty, it can be easy for us to sort of think, uh, well, if God is sovereign, then there's not real choices going on, and there's not real responsibility for sin, right? But in reality, what we see is that God is so um, perfect and powerful and above all things that he can actually sovereignly use the choices of man, the sinful choices of man even, to accomplish the plan that he has decreed from all eternity. And listen, it, this is a challenging thing when we think about it. When we think about the truth that God has ordained, as it says in the Confessions of Faith for centuries, freely whatsoever comes to pass. That can be a challenging thing for us. And I, I have wrestled with that as much as you have. But we actually need God. We need that to be true. We need that to be true. Because if it is not true, then all of God's promises are at best a hope and a wish. If he hasn't freely and truly determined all these things, then as we read his word, we can say, well, I hope it turns out this way. If there's room for something else to be the one that is actually accomplishing the plans for the universe, then something else has, in effect, become God. Right? If God is responding to things, if God is making it up as he goes along, if God is subject to somebody else's will, no matter if it's one man or a thousand men, no matter if it's the random chance of the universe, it has to be God or else something else has become God. And that's why all of his promises can be trusted. That's why every single one of his promises can be trusted. And this truth about God being sovereign, right, the believers here, I want you to think about how they apply this truth, right? It can be easy maybe for you and me to say, well, God is sovereign. He's the one that accomplishes his plan. So do I really have to do anything? 
right? What do, I, what do I have to do if he's in charge, if he's ordained everything that comes to pass? What on earth am I doing here? Notice that the believers don't say that, right? They don't just end their prayer by stopping and saying, well, God's sovereign, and then it just goes dark, right? They don't do anything after that. No, they follow it up by praying for help in, in the action that they're going to step into because God's sovereignty should never push you to inactivity. It should never push you to praying less. It should never push you to doing less. If we start to act that way, then we're a church that maybe has really good doctrine, but we have applied it incredibly wrong. See, we actually pray more and we do more and we speak more precisely because God is the one who is sovereign over all things. We pray more, we speak more, we do more because God is sovereign, because he is the one in charge of all of these things. We can pray because we know that he is able to hear, and he's not just able to hear our prayers and like sympathize with us, but he's actually able to answer them and accomplish his will. And we also pray to him because we know he is the one to go to. He's the one who controls everything in the heavens and the earth and in the sea. And we speak because he is, in fact, the Lord of all men, all women, everywhere, and he is able to accomplish salvation. We pray and we, we speak and we go and we share the gospel not because, well, it's up for grabs. We do all of those things because they are the ends of the earth, his possession. Christ has a claim on every square inch of the world that you and I are walking on. He has authority over every single centimeter that exists everywhere. So we go and we pray and we speak and we, we tell about Christ because all of the ends of the earth are his possession. They're his. And we walk into them and proclaim that truth. And notice after they think about these truths of Christ, they don't pray for safety, right? They don't pray for ease. They say, instead, they say, God, would you please look upon their threats but give your soul servants boldness. Help us to continue to speak the word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When they look at Christ, they realize that he is greater than all the threats that they have faced. It's almost like they don't even need to pray for those threats to go away. They don't need to pray for ease and comfort to come back into their lives. Instead, they recognize that he will overcome those things. And I want us to really clearly apply this to where we are today. I think that there is an, a ridiculous amount of fear in the church. And I use the word ridiculous on purpose because it's, it's not logical, it's ill-founded, it makes no sense. But there's a ridiculous amount of fear in the church today when we look around at the world around us and we spend all this time wringing our hands and worrying about like, man, man, the culture is really messing up and man, my neighbors really seem to hate God and oh, the powerful people really seem to not love Christ and they don't even seem to pretend to love Christ. And what on earth are we going to do about all these powerful people immediately and all these crowds of people that don't believe in Jesus. We spend all this time in fear. And then we sometimes respond by simply praying for ease or for comfort or for safety. But listen, you do not need to fear. Whatever there is, whatever in your mind you think is the greatest threat 
to the church or for the gospel of Christ, whatever you think that is, know that when God looks at it, he laughs at it. When God looks at it, he laughs at it. He says, that's funny, but it's not going to work. He says, as for me, the king is set on Zion. So the nations can rage, they can rise, they can fall, they can do whatever they want, but the king is on the throne and his kingdom is going to keep on going forward. We need to pray like that is true. And honestly, we ought to sing like that is true. We ought to, we ought to be people who actually live like that is true. But do we even feel a need sometimes to ask God for help? Are we convinced that maybe we have so many things handled on our own? Even as a church, I mean, we as a church plant, I hope that we feel a burden to pray for the things that we need, right? Like we're, we're a brand new church plant, right? Not even a year old. So we have needs for God to, to provide financially for our church, for God to continue to grow that so that we would be able to be standing on our own legs, right, instead of, you know, leaning on support from outside the church. Do we pray for that? Do we pray for God to provide us for a building, right, even though we have been generously provided to, to meet here when we do, do we still pray that God would provide for us a building that we can meet in maybe in the morning and maybe have our name on the front of it? Do we think that we're just going to get those things, or do we think that we have to ask God to provide? And most importantly, do you and I think that we have to, that we have to actually ask God to make us useful in, in evangelism? Do we actually believe that we have to ask God to help us to tell people about Christ? Right, in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus calls God the Lord of the harvest. And so often, we as a church, we spend a lot of time, I feel like we just, we're sad about how there doesn't seem to be a harvest and yet, I, if you guys are anything like me, how rarely do we actually go to the Lord of the harvest and say, God, please bring it in. Please bring it in, God. Send laborers out, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 9. Send me out and bring the harvest in. Or do we think that we don't need the Lord of the harvest's help for the harvest to come in? And while we pray those prayers and while we wait for an answer, are we faithful in the meantime? While we wait for an answer, are we faithful in the meantime? Because we can trust our Savior who died on a cross because he loved us that much. So we can be faithful even while we wait for those prayers to be answered. After the believers pray this, we see the effect that their prayer has in verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Think for a moment if you're in that room and all of a sudden it starts to shake. Right? We don't know exactly what that shaking was like. Maybe there was some kind of a feeling of an earthquake. We don't know. We don't get all that much detail about it. But we know that this happened. And if you were in that room, I would think you would you would notice it. Whatever it was, you noticed what was happening. And they were, all, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they were, the room was shaken, right, to give them a confirmation that God had heard their prayer. But even as they're filled with the Spirit, right, we talked about this throughout the book of Acts. We'll talk about it more. The filling of the Spirit, we can get 
weird ideas about that in our culture today, because maybe we've heard all kinds of things about it. The filling of the Spirit wasn't necessarily tied to them speaking in tongues or more miracles happening right there or anything like that. What the filling of the Spirit led them to was to continue to speak the Word of God with boldness. You and I need the filling of the Spirit to speak the Word of God with boldness. And part of this was probably momentary and miraculous, but part of this was probably also a very long and ongoing help that God gave them, right? It says they continued to speak to God, the Word, the word of God with boldness. It wasn't just for the rest of the day. It wasn't just for the rest of the, the week. They continued. They kept on speaking the Word of God with boldness. Because even when there's opposition to the kingdom of God, it doesn't stop the kingdom of God. And it doesn't stop God using His people to advance the kingdom of God. So don't be surprised and don't be freaked out when you face it, when you or I face it. The one who sits in the heavens laughs. It isn't a threat to him. But listen, you and I, we have to rely on his power, right? The early church here, they don't get together and come up with good ideas from themselves. They don't get together and brainstorm new and creative ministry ideas. They, they don't get together and say, boy, if we get some influential people, then maybe this will stop. They recognize a need for God's power to be on them and not just their own. And you and I today, we need to recognize the same thing. We do not need man-made signs and wonders for God to reach out and to save. We do not even need, listen, we do not even need physical miracles like what God is providing in the early church at this time. You don't even need that. You have the Spirit of God given to you. He can save without physically healing someone. But we need God's help to make us faithful. We don't need bigger budgets. We don't need better buildings. We don't need better music, better sound, better lighting. Hopefully, yeah, I mean, way better preaching. We, we don't need all of these things. We don't need a better brand, a better organization. We don't need a, a cooler vibe or a better marketing campaign. We need God's help. And when you and I are convinced that we need God's help, we will pray. We will pray like that is true. When we gather together to sing, we will sing like that is true. As we gather in our community groups, we will gather and study the word like we are desperate for it because we desperately need it. As we have a clearer picture of our Savior who sits on the throne, right, who, who commands all people everywhere by his perfect authority to repent, to come to him and find forgiveness. As we remember he's on the throne, he saved us from all our sins completely and totally by His grace, not by our works. And we remember that He's the Lord of the harvest. We pray. So you and I must ask for God's power to be at work. Psalm 127 is, I hope, in many ways, uh, it's a weird verse maybe to pick as like your church's verse, but at least right now as a church plant, this is our verse Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Let's, let's be people that ask every day, Lord, build your house. Not for our sake, not for Maranatha's sake, 
not for a bigger budget, not for a better ministry, not for more notoriety, not for people to notice us, to turn their heads when, when they say, oh, those people go to Maranatha. That's a great church. That's a cool church. That's a big church. Let's ask God to build the house so that there would be more people who know Christ, who have their sins forgiven, who have freedom given to them, who have been given eternal life. Let's ask God to build because we need his help and not our own. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful because you do hear our prayers. And God, we ask you to help us to pray. We ask you to help us to pray faithfully. Lord, we ask you to help us to pray more. Lord, we ask you to help us to believe. Believe that you are who you say you are, that Christ sits on the throne, and that he, by his grace, by his work on the cross, has removed all of the sin from our shoulders. God, I pray that you would help us to take refuge today. Lord, for all the pain and the hurt, the different members of our congregation today, Lord, all of us gather here today with varying degrees of things that we are struggling through, struggling with, or even crushed under. God, I pray that we would see that it is true that we have a perfect refuge in Jesus Christ. Help us today to take refuge in Him. The rock of ages cleft for us. You would hide us in Him, that the water and the blood would clean us from all sin and make us pure in Your sight. We give thanks in His name. Amen.